should be on. I just have to unmute it. I got it. you. Okay, cool. All right. There we go. Yep, we're working. All right. Well, thank you for being so hospitable towards me and my family. We are thrilled to be with you again. Um, as you know, Pastor John Michael and his family have been on vacation, um, and they are enjoying one last day of family vacation before they return to you. So I'm thrilled that he asked me to be here to fill his pulpit. Uh, he had one requirement for whoever filled this pulpit is that they have a mustache. Um, and I'm one of the few people he could find with a mustache. So here I am. Um, but seriously, I just want to say, John Michael, if you listen to this sermon at any point, thank you for having me. Um, I love you, brother, and I, I'm thankful to see what God's doing in and through Salt Church. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to turn with me to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 is what we're going to be looking at today. How many of you have ever watched the show How It's Made or maybe gone on a website, How Stuff Works, and you get, just get really interested in uh, how things work, and you watch things like that, and you say, I'm never eating hot dogs again. Or maybe you're driving to church and you're thinking, I wonder how an internal combustion engine works. Like, you know, there's these things that we rely on every single day, but we don't really understand. And um, today we're going to look at a passage that tells us how grace works. So give you some quick context for the book of Titus and for the section we're going to be looking at today. The letter of Titus, it was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a man named Titus who he had appointed to go to the island of Crete and to, and to appoint elders and train up elders in the churches in Crete. And so Paul begins his letter to Titus with this in Titus chapter 1. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So right out of the gate, the Apostle Paul tells us why he's writing this letter. First, he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of of the truth. Secondly, so that this knowledge of the truth would lead to godliness. Thirdly, for the hope of eternal life, which God promised before time began and has manifested in his word that we preach. So to say that a simpler way, He's writing because he wants God's people to know the truth, believe the truth, live the truth, hope in the truth, and preach the truth. Amen? Amen. And so Paul goes on uh, in, later in chapter 1. He gives Titus some qualifications for a biblical leader in the church. Um, he, he warns him about some of the challenges he's facing uh, on the island of Crete because the culture in Crete was a disaster, a horrible place that he's sending Titus into. And so then in chapter 2, Paul urges Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And he gives him some practical commands for what that looks like. He gives commands for both men and women, young and old, for leaders in the church, for bond servants. He's telling them how to live holy lives that are shaped by the gospel and consistent with sound doctrine. And in verse 10, right before the section we're going to be walking through today, he says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior. So what Paul wants Titus and the people at Crete to see is that when they live transformed lives, it makes the gospel attractive. It adorns the doctrines of God. So the section we're looking at today answers two questions. Why should I and how can I? Why, Paul, should I live this way? These practical applications that you've just given us. Why should we and how can I? 
So he gave the, the application first. And now Paul's communicating that these doctrinal truths are the foundation for and the foundation of Christian living. He's telling him that uh, to teach the church that these things are the foundation for everything that he's told him to teach the church under his care. So verse 11 begins with the word for. So he's, he's just made all these claims and given all these commands, and now he's grounding it in this. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for who you are. God, I pray today that as we as we look at your word, that your Holy Spirit would teach us, your Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth, that you'd protect us from error today, both in what is said and what is heard, Lord. We thank you uh, for what you're doing in and through this church body, and I thank you for the opportunity to be here, uh, Lord, and I pray that you see fit to use me to communicate your truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So the first thing we see in verse 11 here is that the grace of God has appeared. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace has appeared. Now, that word appeared tends to have a connotation of something just coming out of nowhere, right? It wasn't there, and now it is. And it makes me think, in my family, we like to scare each other, or startle each other is probably a better word for it. You know, you hear somebody coming, and you hide and wait, and then you jump out, and sometimes we'll set up a phone and film it, and it'll end up on social media. It's a lot of fun. Um, it, it really gets fun when your kids catch on, and they start doing it too, and um, keeps things interesting. And so, but that's not how the grace of God has appeared, that's not how it's appeared. When, when someone startles you, it, it seems as though they weren't there and then they just appeared out of nowhere. But we know that's not true, right? We know they were there the whole time. The same is true with the grace of God. I want to read to you from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. It says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, when? Before the ages began. So when we say grace has appeared, I want you to think how big that word is. Before the ages began, the grace of God was given in Christ before the ages began. Before you were born, before there was an earth, before time existed, God purposed to give you grace in Christ Jesus. This grace isn't plan B. It's not just because we need it, but because of God's good and perfect will. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus in the mind of God before the ages began. Does that not blow your mind? What, a, what an amazing God we serve. What amazing grace he's given us. So the, what then does it mean that grace has appeared? Grace has appeared in that it was made manifest in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That means when Jesus came to the earth to be born as a man, he was incarnated onto the earth. He lived a perfect life, and through his death, burial, and resurrection, 
Grace has now appeared in time and space in the earth. Grace is not just a concept, but it's a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. He was not a created being. He didn't suddenly appear or come into existence, but he has existed from eternity past. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And in his incarnation, he split human history wide open. He made manifest the grace of God, which he purposed before the ages began. And he's promised us through the ages. Second thing we see in verse 11 is the grace of God brings salvation for all people. When grace appeared, it brought salvation. That word brought is significant. Salvation was brought to you. It was offered to you. You did nothing to earn it. And you surely didn't do anything to deserve it. But it was brought to you freely. Now, we know clearly from the rest of Scripture that this phrase, all people, is not teaching the heresy of universalism, right? It's not teaching that everybody's going to heaven no matter what. No, it's grace has appeared in Christ Jesus. Grace is in Christ Jesus alone, and apart from him, there is no grace. There is no salvation apart from Christ. So what does it mean that grace has appeared to all people? It's saying that grace has appeared to been made manifest in Christ Jesus, bringing salvation to all that would believe and follow Jesus. And what a glorious truth this was to the original audience in Crete. He's saying, yes, even you despicable Cretans, the grace of God has appeared to you. Even you in little old Hartfield, Virginia, the grace of God has appeared to you. Amen? This is good news. Galatians 3 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This glorious grace that Jesus Christ is giving to people, is, it's regardless of ethnicity, it's regardless of nationality, it's regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of gender, regardless of anything you can think of. It's given freely. And if we belong to Christ, we are the spiritual heirs of Abraham according to the promise. You know what grace does? Grace takes enemies of God and it makes them sons and daughters. Amen? It's amazing. We see in verse 12 that the grace of God trains us. It says, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What does it mean that grace trains us? This word here that's translated as training, it has a connotation of training up or educating a child, right? Now, how many of you have kids in the room or have raised kids? You know that When you're training children, a huge aspect of that is discipline, right? Huge aspect of that is discipline. And I think training and discipline is an aspect of grace that we tend to overlook sometimes. We tend to minimize and not give proper emphasis. We tend to think of grace more like mercy. Grace is not getting what I deserve. We we think of uh, grace as being on the opposite end of a spectrum, right? We say things like grace and truth. We don't, we don't think of grace as being training and discipline. And when we, when we don't understand grace rightly, we trivialize it. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, superficial views of the work of Christ produce superficial human lives. Lord, help us not to take your grace for granted, not to think trivially about your grace, but to think rightly. Grace trains us 
we see here both a negative and a positive response in the way that grace trains us. And Ephesians 4 uses language of putting off and putting on. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 says this, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So grace trains us to renounce or to put off ungodliness and worldly passions. How many of you have hobbies? Maybe it's golf or playing an instrument or or whatever. And sometimes you get to a place in your hobbies where you say, you know what, I really want to go to the next level and I don't know how to get there. I'm going to hire a coach or I'm going to hire a trainer, somebody who can really help me hone this craft. But you know what his, his or her most difficult task is going to be? It's not going to be teaching you the proper way to do things. It's going to be helping you to unlearn all of your bad habits, helping you to unlearn all of the things that you've done that are not proper. And in the same way, grace is training us to put off our ungodliness, to put off our worldly passions. H.B. Charles defined ungodliness as to live as if there is no God. So to live as if there is no God, it's, it's to be a slave to your own desires. It's to live as though you're not going to give an account for what you say and do. It's to live as though you are the ultimate authority in your life. And I don't know about you, but when I live that way, it leads to disaster. Because I'm not a good God, and neither are you. When we live ungodly, we live as if there is no God, and this leads to all sorts of sin and wickedness. And our passage today refers to these as worldly passions. And don't for a second think that this just, is just referring to immorality. It's, it's so much more than just mere immorality. Think of the Pharisees in the Gospels, right? They were known as being morally upright people. But Jesus rebuked them at every turn. Why? Because in their striving, in their law-keeping, in their rule-keeping, they rejected Christ. And so our ungodliness can take many forms, whether it's sinful, worldly passions, or self-righteousness. The antidote is the same. It's grace. Grace is the antidote for our ungodliness. Grace doesn't just rescue us from hell, but it trains us to live in such a way to bring God glory. Romans 6 says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So to put it another way, grace doesn't just save us from the consequences of sin. It saves us from sin. Right? It saves us, actually saves us from sin. It actually does something. And church, if we say yes to Jesus and continue in our sin, we're making a willful decision to choose our sin over Jesus. Because grace actually saves us from our sin. It creates in us both the ability and the desire to live a godly life. And the more you understand what the grace of God has done for you, the more you will desire to keep God's glory central in your life. Grace trains us how to live. Grace trains us to say no to sin and yes to godliness. When you say yes to Jesus, you are effectively saying no to tens of thousands of other things, right? When I said yes to my wife, I effectively said no to every other woman in the world. I like to think most of them were disappointed by that. (laughs) But 
But no, seriously, when you say yes to Jesus, you are saying no to ungodliness. You're saying no to sinful passions. You're saying no to these things, and you're being trained by grace how to live. Verse 12 tells us that grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. I want you to notice here, there's three aspects to our behavior that Paul's talking about. There's inward, there's outward, and there's upward, or you could say Godward if you prefer. Firstly, inward, that's to live self-controlled, or uh, the New King James Version puts it, to live soberly. And what that means is, uh, it speaks to our inward behavior. We're inwardly bearing the fruit of the Spirit. We're being self-controlled. It means we're saying no to lust. It means we're saying no to our vices, whatever they may be. You know what your vices are. I don't. It means we're saying no to our, beset, our besetting sins. We're not being controlled by our former passions. We, we don't, uh, we're not controlled by these things, but we are allowing uh, the Holy Spirit to help us to be self-controlled. We're taking our actions and our thoughts and we're making them obedient to Christ. Amen? Amen. And then we live uh, outwardly. To live upright. To live upright speaks to the way we interact with the world around us. We don't lie to people. We don't cheat people. We're not violent. We're not quarrelsome. We don't gossip. We live in such a way that people would see that we're living uprightly. We, we live in such a way that people have no credible accusation against us. And then upward or Godward, to live godly. You know, we said before, ungodliness is to live as if there's no God. So uh, conversely, a godly life is a, is a life that lives fully acknowledging God and living in the fear of God and, and aiming to keep the glory of God central. We're ordering our lives in a, that's a way that's around God and around his glory. And apart from the grace of God training us, we would never be able to do any of this, right? We would never be able to live self-controlled, upright, or godly lives. It's only by the grace of God that we can live Christ-like in this present age, as the Apostle Paul puts it. Now, this, this phrase, in this present age, it's not a chronological term. He's not talking about in the first century on the island of Crete. This is an eschatological term. This is, this is saying we live in an age known as the church age between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. We are in this time uh, known as the church age. The Bible often refers to this as the last days or, or the last hour. And it's, it's the time between the two appearances of Christ when he appeared in grace and when he will one day appear in glory. This age is, is the now and the not yet of the kingdom. So Jesus has defeated sin. He's defeated death. He's, he's inaugurated the kingdom, right? He's sitting at the right hand of God until all his enemies are made his footstool. That's, that's a present reality. We're not waiting for that to happen. That's already happened. And God's kingdom is alive and well in the hearts of his people. Amen? Amen. But there's also a sense in which there's a not yet aspect to the kingdom. He's not yet fully established his kingdom physically on the earth. So we've had an appearance of grace. It's inaugurated his kingdom, but we still await the fullness of his coming. The fullness of his coming kingdom when he appears in glory. And grace trains us to wait for that. Verse 13, he says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So grace trains us to wait for our blessed hope, which is the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice Paul says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to get a little nerdy on, with you for a minute. The grammar there, it's not referring to two different people. It's not saying our great God the Father and our Savior Jesus Christ. No, the term God and the term Savior are referring to one person, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our Savior and He is God. This is an explicit attestation to the deity of Christ. Jesus wasn't a man, or He was a man, but He wasn't just a man. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a prophet. He was God in the flesh. Fully God, fully man. And church, that's our blessed hope, that Jesus is God and he's coming back. He's coming back in all of his glory. So waiting, the idea of waiting here, it's not sitting idly by waiting for something to happen, right? Totally the wrong picture. What this is, this is uh, an active waiting. It's not a passive waiting. This is about eager expectation. It's about an eager expectation that affects every single area of our lives. Illustrate it to you this way. It's not as though we are a group of soldiers pinned down by the enemy, hoping and waiting someone's going to come rescue us. No. We've already been rescued. The war's already been won. We've been called home to our home country, and we're now on our way there. And yeah, there's some enemies that haven't met their fate yet that we're still going to do battle with, but we are not fighting from a place of defeat. We're fighting from a place of victory. We're fighting from a place of victory because Jesus has already won the war. And the training of grace enables us to have a hope beyond this life. If the past few years have taught us anything, it's that people are are tragically prone to anxiety and fear, right? I don't think I need to get much more specific. You know exactly what I'm talking about. This should not be true of the Christian. And let me be frank with you for a minute. I get concerned when Christians are overly anxious about politics, overly anxious about who's in office or what's going on in the Middle East. Now, you should be concerned about those things, a healthy concern. You should be a good citizen, not saying you shouldn't. But what I'm saying is that when we allow that fixation to become anxiousness and fear or, God forbid, we start to put our hope in those things, we have lost sight of an eternal perspective. And we have lost sight of the hope that we have that goes beyond anything in this life. Our blessed hope, church, it's not merely that we'll escape hell and that we'll go to heaven, but it's the return of Jesus in all of his glory. Jesus is our blessed hope. He will judge the living and the dead. He will cast all of his enemies into hell. He will establish his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth where we will reign with him in eternity in our resurrected bodies. Church, Jesus is your blessed hope and grace trains you to wait for him. Fourthly, we see grace. The grace of God makes us a redeemed and purified People. So it says, Jesus Christ, and then picks up in verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So Jesus gave himself to redeem us and to purify us. Now, 
That word redemption is a huge word, and we're going to unpack it. It, it, We tend to think of the concept of redemption as a thing. I think it's me. Uh, We tend to think of the concept of redemption as something we do for ourselves, right? When I go fishing and I don't catch any fish, I I might say, man, I've got to get back out there and redeem myself. Or we might look at a character like Anakin Skywalker and say, he fell to the dark side, but he redeemed himself in the end. Sorry, that's a spoiler. It's been out for like 40 years, though, so it's kind of it's kind of on you. But the fact is that redemption is not something we're capable of doing for ourselves. Now, historically, this word redemption, it was used to describe purchasing the freedom of a slave. Redemption was to purchase or or buy back the freedom of a slave. And does the slave have any power to purchase his own freedom? No. Of course not. A slave needs someone else to redeem him. And in the same way, this is what Christ has done for us. He said in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gave his life as a ransom payment to purchase your freedom. And what what were we redeemed from? Titus 2.14 tells us we were redeemed from all lawlessness. And what is lawlessness? 1 John 3.4 tells us plainly. It says everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Super simple. And the Bible is clear that not only have we all been born sinners through Adam... I know Pastor John Michael's been going through the Apostles' Creed with you. Um, I've listened to some of those messages on Spotify, and he was just talking about this uh, a few weeks ago, how Adam's our federal head, and we have all uh, perfectly inherited sin through Adam, who perfectly represented us before God, right? But it's, it's not just that we've become sinners through Adam. We have become slaves to sin. We are slaves in the kingdom of darkness, and Jesus gave himself as a ransom to redeem us from slavery to sin and bring us into his kingdom. Colossians 1 says it this way in verse 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So our freedom was not simply purchased so that we could just go and be free and do whatever we want. No, we were purchased to serve another master. We were purchased to serve another master. Our text today in verse 14 says that Jesus redeemed us for who? Himself. And as what? A people for his own possession. As 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. We've been freed, yes, but we've been freed in order to serve another master. Romans 6, verses 20 through 22 says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things in which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. So when God set us free from the slavery of sin, we became slaves of God. And being a slave of God is not like the slavery we left. It's not oppressive. It doesn't lead to our death, but it gives us life. 
It sanctifies us. And what does he say? The end of sanctification is eternal life. Look what God said to the nation of Israel after saving them from slavery in Egypt. Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 4. It says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What a sweet word to receive after 400 plus years of slavery and bondage. And God brought the nation of Israel out of this slavery and brought them to himself as his treasured possession. And guess what? This real historical event that actually happened, it points us to a greater reality. It points us to a greater spiritual reality of what Christ has done for his church. God told Israel that he would make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now I want you to look at what the apostle Peter said about the church in 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Sound familiar? It's the exact same language of Exodus 19. You see how the apostles are intentional to take the language of the Old Testament and apply it to the New Testament church? That has massive implications for us, church. We're going to look at a few more examples of this in a moment. What I want you to see here is that this appearance and working of grace is the fulfillment of the promised new covenant. Let's look at some of the writings of the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Ezekiel. Now, these prophets, they wrote to the nation of Israel, which had rejected God, had sinned against God. They were divided and they went into captivity in a land called Babylon. Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 33 says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The Lord said through the prophet Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 25 through 27, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And lastly, Ezekiel 37 verse 23 says, They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and I will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Amen? Amen. Church, this promised redemption, this promised purification, this is what Jesus gave himself for. 
This is what Jesus purchased for you. The new covenant in his blood. And we are the recipients of this new and better covenant that the prophets of the Old Testament foretold. And God in Christ, he's redeemed us and he is purifying us. He's made for himself a people, no longer just for the nation of Israel, but for all who would believe and follow Jesus. A people from every tribe, tongue and nation. Jesus sanctifies and purifies his redeemed people. As Ephesians 5 tells us, starting in verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish church we are heirs of the promise through grace this is how grace works this is how grace works in your life and lastly we see that the grace of god makes us zealous for good works titus 2 14 says he's redeemed us and purified us as a people for his own possession so by grace we belong to him and we are zealous for good works so grace replaces obligation as the driving force behind your good works, right? Your works don't save you. Your works don't earn you anything. You're not keeping the law because you have to. You're doing it out of an overflow of God's grace in your life and your love for him. Amen? He's written his law on our hearts. He's given us a new heart. He's put his spirit within us. As Ezekiel 36 said, he will cause us to walk in his statutes and obey his rules. Grace will give you the ability and the desire to live a godly life. He will cause that in you through his spirit by grace. What the law failed to do, grace is doing. Amen? Grace gives us a zeal or a passion to do what is right and good. It enables us and gives us a desire to serve our new master joyfully because we belong to him. Our works are the overflow of gratitude and love for our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we close this morning, I just want to sum this up for you. The grace of God has appeared firstly to save us. I want to ask you, have you been saved by grace? I think in this group, most of us here are probably believers, but I don't want to assume anything. So if, you, if you've not had the opportunity to be saved by this appearance of grace, you have that opportunity today. Don't leave here today without freely accepting that gift of grace. Repent of your sin, believe in Jesus, and make him the Lord and King of your life today. Secondly, we see that the grace of God has appeared to train us. I want to ask you this morning to do some soul searching and say, how is the grace of God training me? What is, the, what is grace training you to put off? What is grace training you to put on? Where are the areas where grace is working on you? And I want to, I want to say this uh, plainly. If grace is not training you, you ought to question whether or not it has saved you. It's a package deal. How is grace training you? And church, we need to renounce our ungodliness, renounce our worldly passions so that we can live self-controlled, upright, and godly and await his return with eager expectation. 
The grace of God has appeared to redeem us and purify us as a people. Your salvation is so much bigger than you. So much bigger than your one tiny little life. You are part of a people. You are part of a spiritual house that God is building. You are part of God's people. You belong to him. You were free to serve a new master in covenant relationship. And lastly, we make, he makes us zealous for good works. Your works don't save you. If, if you've heard even for a second today me saying, leave here and be good, leave here and, and do nice things, you've missed the point. That's not the point. This, this is an overflow of what God has done in us. It's the evidence of grace working in our life. So let your good works be an overflow of your gratitude and your love for God. And as the Apostle Paul said uh, in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, it's so that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God. Right? So that the world will look at our transformed, our gospel-shaped lives, and they will see God's grace on display. And whether they accept it or reject it is not on you. That's up to the Lord. But be obedient to live a godly life. This is the why and the how. This is why you should and how you should. Because grace trains you and grace makes you able and gives you the desire to live a godly life. Let's close and then we'll dismiss. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. God, I thank you for this word. I'm so excited about this word. Lord, such a a needed reminder, God, of how your grace works. How your grace works in our lives. God, to save us, to train us. We thank you for redeeming us, for purifying us, for making us a people of your own possession. Lord, we ask you to purify us, to cleanse us, to make us, to present us to yourself without spot or blemish. Lord, we know that only happens through your grace. We can't muster that up on our own. Lord, we thank you for this grace, this glorious grace that you've seen fit to bestow on us. I pray that when we leave here today, God, we would adorn these truths with our lives so that the world around us would see that your grace is real and that it's available to them. Amen. All right, you're dismissed. Thank you for being here today.